Welcome to a special edition of the Darden Admissions Podcast. I'm your host, Brett Twitty, and you are listening to a new episode. On this episode of the podcast, I'm excited to continue our ongoing Faculty Spotlight series, what we're calling Office Hours, with a conversation with Casey Lichtendahl. Casey is a member of the Darden faculty, and he is also the co-academic director of the MSBA program here at the Darden School of Business. We recently connected with Casey to talk a bit more about his background, what led him to Darden, his research interests, and so much more. I think you're really going to enjoy this conversation. So without further ado, here is my interview with Casey Lichtendahl. Casey, thank you for waking up early. I know you're on West Coast time these days. It's great to have you here. Uh, Thank you, Brett. It's great to be here. Well, Casey, one of the things I really enjoyed as part of this Office Hour series is to hear a little bit more of the the personal stories of our Darden faculty. I think people look at the website to see your research areas, interests, but tell us a little bit more about your background and your story. Well, how far back shall I go? Well, let's go to the beginning. Where are you from? I I grew up in in Ohio. I uh, was uh, born and raised in Cincinnati and um, then made my way out of the Midwest and went to school on the East Coast and um, spent some time in New Jersey. And then um, after graduation, I went back um, to Cincinnati and uh, joined a family business. Um, It was a beer brewing business. did that for for a while before uh, we decided to exit the beer brewing industry and uh, sold the facility to Sam Adams. Um, the um, founder of Sam Adams, Jim Cook, is from Cincinnati, so he wanted to have a facility there, and he um, acquired our plant. And at the time, we were uh, off embarking on founding a new company uh, focused on uh, the iced tea market. Uh, so we started a company called Tradewinds Iced Tea and um, spun that out and um, operated that for another 15 or so years and um, sold that in 2010 to uh, some private equity folks um, and Nestle Waters. I want to go back to your... Yeah, yeah, so I spent a lot of time in the beverage industry. That that didn't (laughs) uh, come through in that response. Well, let's go back to your, your family uh, story. So what was it like growing up around uh, your, your family business, uh, having entrepreneurs in, in your family, people who are running and directing their own business? Well, um, my family didn't start the, the, uh, the beer, or my, my father didn't start it. It was started by my um, great-grandfather. So um it goes back a ways. So um, the, the, the entrepreneurial gene uh, was there, but we, we didn't really size uh, it until we started this iced tea company. Um, but r- growing up in that business was fascinating. Business was a, a part of my childhood. Uh, weekends were spent uh, touring the facility and, and uh, overhearing lots of conversations about um, strategy and operations and, marketing and um, all of the things um, that uh, go into running, running a successful business. So how does a family go from, we're in the beer business, you sell to Sam Adams, to deciding that what you'd like to do is focus on the iced tea market? That seems like a relatively big pivot, even though it's still within beverages. Yeah, so back in the um, late 80s, early 90s, um, Regional brewer a dying uh, a breed and uh, to supplement uh, their their income and to fill capacity, they would co-pack a contract manufacture for other uh, brands. And one thing we started a contract manufacturer, we were the first contract manufacturer for Arizona iced tea. And it woke us up to some other markets that might be more promising, faster growing, higher margin. And so we pivoted. Uh, we started our own brand up and... Um, exited the beer industry. Um, the whole revolution of smaller brewers having success uh, in the market uh, came a little bit late for us. Um, we, we stepped off about a decade too soon, I think. Well, it's interesting what you share there, because if you go back in U.S. history, there were a lot of local beers um, that served local markets, maybe a regional footprint, 
And now we're back in that moment. Yeah. Are, are you surprised by this revolution in craft brewing and local brewing? Yes, that very much surprised me. There were, I think, over a thousand breweries uh, at the time of Prohibition in 1933 when the 12-year um, Prohibition on beer and spirits, hard liquor in, in the United States ended. Uh, it got down to, I think, under 50. Um, I think we were at one point ranked 10th in the U.S., uh, the Hudipal Shaneling Brewing Company is the company I'm referring to, uh, our family business uh, for a while. And um, now it's back up in the, the few thousands. I, I think last time I checked, it was like 2,400 brewers in the United States. It's, it's really incredible. Well, let's talk about your, your Darden story a bit more, because if folks have spent some time with your faculty profile, they real, they've likely realized and read that you are a Darden alum. So many of our prospective students here today kind of going through this decision-making process to put Darden on their list and trying to figure out, you know, what Darden's all about. How did you end up at Darden? Well, I ended up at Darden um, looking at some brochures. Um, I guess at the time when I was shopping for MBA programs, um, wasn't all that common to go visit the, the school. Uh, and maybe this is uh, similar to what uh, folks who are overseas are experiencing, may not get a chance to visit these campuses. So I was a heavy consumer of uh, brochures coming out of MBA programs. And there were two programs on my mind, Harvard and Darden, and both were case method and one of them felt more like a cooperative environment, uh, maybe a little bit less competitive. Um, folks uh, at the school seemed uh, quite interested in, in helping others around them get through the program. Uh, I wanted to study intensively. Uh, at the time, it had a reputation for being a boot camp. It's less so that way now. Uh, used to go to school on Fridays. The previous generation told me we had it easy. They went to school on Saturdays. Now there are no classes on Fridays. It's just Monday through Thursday. Uh, the program's still intense. Um, and then I was looking for that. Uh, you can learn a lot when um, people decide to um, cover the ground and give you the proper foundation in business. Well, Casey, there's this great video with you reflecting on you know, your research interests and, and your work at the Darden School. And one of the things that you share in that video is that you took a class as a first year student at Darden that basically changed your life and changed the trajectory of your career. You want to talk a little bit more about that story? Yeah, that's very real, Brett. Um, I was in first year decision analysis, or at the time it was called quantitative analysis with, with Robert Carraway. And Robert is still on the faculty. He's now a colleague of mine. Uh, but uh, that first course I experienced in uh, these quantitative methods just lit me up. I uh, wanted to understand what was behind uh, the algorithms I was using. Uh, I didn't quite understand um, how someone could develop uh, such a deep set of logical rules uh, to solve a problem with the press of a button. Um, we were using... Uh, solver in, in Excel. We were using uh, at risk a Monte Carlo simulation software. I, I was just fascinated by um, how, how deep uh, the, the foundations were and the principles that were used to build up those algorithms. And I just wanted to understand more about all of that. And, and that eventually led me to um, just taking a lot of quantitative courses throughout the MBA program, but also ultimately uh, led me to go pursue uh, a PhD in the field and ultimately then uh, spend my life in academia, largely in academia, um, trying to create some of my own algorithms. One of the things that I was thinking about, you know, in that story, listening to you tell that story in your video is wondering, were you always a numbers person? Like this interest in quantitative analysis, had this bubbled up in other parts of your life and you just happened to find this vehicle, this framework that really resonated with you? Yeah, uh, two things stand out. Yeah, it was always a part of me. It was the the only thing I really didn't didn't have to study uh, uh, to to do well at. And um, I remember a statistics course when I was um, in the tenth grade, uh, which was surprising. I, I 
would talk to friends at other schools in Cincinnati and they didn't have statistics in the 10th grade. Uh, it was a very passionate teacher at my high school. And um, that was the first uh, glimpse I had of what I do now professionally on, on a daily basis. Um, and then the second experience was in college taking a econometrics course and learning about regression analysis and the project we were working on was how to predict the price of wine and what covariates you could use to, to predict those prices and whether that helped you buy wine in the market. Um, our, our professor was a, a wine collector and I, I think he made his own personal hobby into part of the curriculum. It was, it was really cool. Well, that's great. And you come, you come to Darden, you take Robert Carraway's class. Uh, for those of you who haven't spent some time with our faculty listing on the website, Robert is still on the faculty. In fact, if you attended last weekend's virtual diversity conference, he taught one of the mock classes. So he's, he's still here. You could potentially have a class with him, a legend here at Darden, to be sure. Um, one of the things, Casey, I mean, quantitative analysis, it's a huge field and this, this kind of work you can go in a lot of different directions. How did you find your particular niche or your particular area of interest? Mm -hmm. I got pretty interested in, uh, so actually before I did the PhD and after I finished Darden, I went and did uh, two master's degrees at Stanford. And uh, one of them was in the stat department. The other was in the management science and engineering department. And the course I really gravitated to in the MS and E department at Stanford was the decision analysis course, which is uh, the, one of the courses I, I, I teach quite frequently at Darden, first year core course. And um, it's an interesting mix of um, forecasting and decision-making. Uh, you need to make a forecast to calculate an expected value to know what the value of a particular option is. And uh, it was that mix of forecasting and uh, decision-making that um, really drew me in. And um, that's what I studied at Duke uh, in a PhD program in decision sciences. Uh, that was just enough statistics uh, to keep uh, that part of my brain lit up. Uh, and there was enough of real world decision-making where, where there was an application for all of that forecasting and prediction work uh, that uh, that was, that was sort of the sweet spot. Now, more recently um, I, I spend most of my time thinking about forecasting um, the decision-making side of, of the house, if you will, of our field um, hasn't uh, experienced the kind of growth that the forecasting side has, and, and probably everyone in the world is aware of this, uh, machine learning has taken over um, the, the forecasting world and, and the prediction world. Um, and uh, that's exciting to be uh, contributing to that, uh, that push forward. It's a big push forward for humanity. It's, it's changing the way we experience everything digitally online. Um, all of us experience, experience these algorithms daily, whether we know it or not. And um, it's uh, great to be a part of, of, of something that is growing so rapidly. It feels like this has been in the news a lot lately. Algorithms and what's being served to you and some of the ways that machines are operating within these algorithms um, feels like a very timely topic. Yes. Yeah. There's a fair amount of ethics that goes into all of this as we're now all, if we didn't realize before, we, we, it, it, it should be at the top of our minds. Well, Casey, I want to come back to something that you mentioned because we undoubtedly have people on this call this morning uh, who come from a quantitative background. They're excited about statistics. They have done some of the things that you've talked about, they're engaged in forecasting, building models, this kind of thing. And we also undoubtedly have people on this call who have not done any of those things and have never right. had exposure. So you've led the first year course in decision analysis where you have this mix of people in the room. How do you think about teaching to everybody in that classroom? Well, yeah, this is something we're really committed to at Darden is taking in cohorts of very diverse learners, folks that don't have strong quantitative backgrounds, folks that have largely qualitative experiences in their work uh, life uh, prior to coming to an MBA program. And we tailor the onboarding process and it starts even before the core 
before you take your first four credit class. There are uh, courses you can take ahead of it, non-credit bearing courses, things uh, we call Darden before Darden that um, help people ease into this environment where um, there are, go are going to be some quantitative things that are discussed and advanced and developed uh, along with uh, more of the managerial judgment part of uh, what goes into uh, getting up to speed on, on the foundations of business. And um, I think we've got a sequence of cases, a sequence of experiences, a sequence of tech notes, a sequence of uh, case discussions, class discussions, approaches for helping those who don't quite have uh, the quantitative experience. Um, even if they don't have the quantitative knack, uh, we think we can develop some intuition around that we think we can provide the basic foundations to, at a bare minimum, how to collaborate with people who have these, these skills, uh, know how to leverage uh, teams that have these skills, know how to manage, lead, and ultimately commercialize on the basis of um, technology that's largely advanced through these quantitative methods. I'll see a question here in the Q&A, and we're starting to get it get a few submissions to the Q&A. So if you do have some questions as we go along, please feel free to ask. We always get more questions than we can actually speak to here, but it's great to hear what's on your mind. A question here about any advice for someone coming in, maybe not a numbers person, not as much background in this area, um, wondering, you know, what can I do to get ready? You mentioned Darden before Darden. Any other like practical tips you would, you've seen work for students, uh, things that you think are helpful for students to keep in mind as they orient towards this experience? Yeah, I, I think you can do some outside reading. Um, this is on the softer side, but uh, sometimes the, the softer side can, can help you warm up to the harder side of what's going on in, in these quantitative fields. And one book I, I recommend to folks um, that's fairly accessible is Nate Silver's The Signal and the Noise. It's a great overview of lots of things quantitative in the world of forecasting. Um, it's one of the things that um, you'll use in a finance class. You'll, excuse me, use in a marketing class. You'll use in, in an operations class. And of course, it'll be at the, f the fore of what you learn in, say, a decision analysis class. Appreciate that, that recommendation. One of the things that's been fun about office hours is we've asked faculty to share some reading recommendations for people who and want to learn a little bit more, kind of dig into this area. So Casey, you talked about your, your progression and sort of how you got interested in, in, you know, your research area. And so you are, you know, someone who spent a lot of time forecasting and sort of thinking about these kinds of things. Tell us a little bit more about the particular forecasting approach or, you know, kind of questions that you enjoy thinking about. Mm -hmm. uh, well, like most folks in this field, I'm, I'm interested in what machine learning has to offer uh, the world of forecasting, and in particular, time series forecasting. Uh, that's one of my focuses in my research these days. It's um, what I do, did when, while I was on leave working at Google. Um, it's what I still do uh, part-time for Google now. Um, and... Um, yeah, uh, time series forecasting is is um, a place where I think there's a sweet spot sweet spot for uh, incorporating machine learning into uh, the methodology, not losing sight of some of the tried and true statistical methods that have worked now for over fifty years in that domain, uh, as well as uh, leaving the humans in the loop so that um, there's the ability to incorporate some human judgment. Particularly when you get into really long range forecasting, you've got a, a, a long-term horizon. You're looking out, say, a year and a half, two years. You wanna build out a five-year, 10-year model for forecasting a company's revenues, for instance. Um, that's still a place where human judgment largely rules the day and um, you can, take some data, you can try to learn from the data, you can build out some statistical models, maybe there's a machine learning model that could help in that context, uh, but uh, human judgment is still gonna be a part of that process. So I wanna stick with this interest in machine learning um, for a second, because 
one of the things that, that you mentioned is that this has tremendous impact for humanity, right? The, the full scale of, of society. Um, where do you, I mean, where do you see it's, you know, how do you think about this when you think about where we could go or what could happen here and look at, look on the horizon as somebody who's intimately involved with thinking about what ma machine learning can do? Mm -hmm. Well, machine learning is uh, making some amazing strides, especially in things like image recognition um, and the step changes in improvement of the accuracy of these models has facilitated whole new industries. Um, we're about to have a breakthrough, I think, on self-driving cars, for instance. Um, it's already changed the way products like Google Photos works. You can search your catalog of photos and, and pretty much surface anything with just a keyword and it's the combination of um, search technology, but also image recognition that allows that kind of a product to go forward. And we're experiencing with most digital applications, it's this um, inter interface between um, the, the information we have from the user uh, together with um, things we're learning about the population, you're able to leverage uh, similarities between uh, users on these platforms and that's all machine learning enabled. Um, where's machine learning headed? Um, well, a lot of folks are scared of AI. Uh, they think machine learning is the beginning of actual artificial intelligence where the machine starts to have consciousness and, and create its own uh, set of rules and create its own algorithm right itself. Um, talk about the singularity this moment when that might all happen and all of a sudden we're in danger and and the the evil machines rise up and and and, and take over uh i've always been pretty skeptical of that um i spent a lot of time at google over the last two two and a half years uh focused on building up a machine learning algorithm pretty much from scratch uh, with a little help from a few architectures that are existing, but pretty much for sc from scratch to solve one of our time series problems at, at the company forecasting um, compute loads at data centers. And, um, you know, we're, we're achieving some accuracy improvements, but we're not, we're not blowing folks away with, with, with the improvements. This is not like, um, you know, 10 X improvements. It's not even two X. Uh, we're still in, you know, sometimes the single digits, double digit percentage improvements. And so I, I feel like we're in a period where uh, there have been some step changes, but now we're, 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 we're reaching, you know, potentially in some areas, diminishing returns. And so, yeah, I, I'm a little skeptical uh, of the whole singularity. If we're on a, a more gentle uh, uh, improvement curve now for a while, uh, gosh, it seems like the singularity is far off. I don't. I appreciate a little bit of science fiction here for your, your Friday <laughs> Friday morning. Um, so Casey, I want, you mentioned it. And, and so this is a great time to talk about your experience at, at Google. You're still uh, working part-time for Google. And we probably have some attendees today who are interested in, in working at Google. Uh, how did that come together? And you mentioned doing this time series forecasting with with data centers, um, I, gosh, mm -hmm. uh, I, that's fascinating. I didn't imagine that they had people doing that kind of thing, but it makes sense when you think yeah. about it. Yeah, so I uh, went to a conference in New York City in 2018, and uh, it was a conference on time series forecasting. It was for the uh, M4 competition. Um, the M series of competitions is I think one of the oldest forecasting competitions in the world. Uh, it's been held uh, about every decade since the 60s. And I think they're up to MXL. And uh, I went to this conference and uh, there's a, there was a gentleman on stage and he was from Google and he said, uh, oh, by the way, when he finished his presentation, oh, by the way, if there are any academics in the audience who would like to spend some time at Google, I'll be in the back. Why don't you come and see me? And uh, I, I, I did that. And uh, I met my current manager, Chris Fry, and uh, had a great conversation. And from there, I was interviewing and then trying to arrange a leave with UVA. And um, I went off to the West Coast and spent a year. And then, of course, COVID hit and uh, sort of time to come back. But uh, thank thankfully, we can all 
work remotely and 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 I still still keep that engagement going part-time. So you mentioned this data center project. Was that interesting to you to work on? Kind of to think about that particular question? Yeah. Yeah. I um I uh, spent a lot of time in the beverage industry focused on operations and um, making forecasts for production. Um, and it's quite similar. In this case, it's a server service, uh, but uh, it's got to be available and it needs to be forecasted, planned for, uh, parts ordered, uh, machines uh, installed and, and spun up, turned on, provisioned, and um, that uh, feels actually quite similar to, to forecasting demand in the beverage industry. Um, we're forecasting demand uh, for compute power uh, at these data centers. And uh, it's a time series problem and uh, it's a very challenging problem. Um, our accuracies are, are still not what we like them to be. Um, you, you'd like to have a perfect uh, forecast, uh, clairvoyance, basically know the future and order exactly to that demand. But, uh, you know, out of stocks are expensive. So you have to uh, order, you know, uh, reasonably more than you actually expect, uh, but not too much more. You don't want to have a bunch of excess inventory sitting around. Uh, so it's just a interesting problem, a problem I've thought about a long time. And, um, it's, uh, it's, it's quite rewarding to, to, to be a uh, part of the team where uh, the forecasts you're making and the decisions that depend on it uh, are, are in the billions of dollars on an annual basis. It's, it's, it's unlike any other decision I've been a part of. Well, I'm so fascinated to hear that thread from your work as you began your career in the beverage industry to what you're doing now. You think about beverages and data centers, they seem very different on the surface, but yet there's commonality there. Mm -hmm. That's right. Well, some of our attendees might be wondering a, a bit about what time series forecasting is. And um, just want to check in on that just to make sure we're, we're all on the same page because we're going to talk a little bit later about some of your other research interests and things that you're working on now. But what specifically is uh, is time series forecasting? Yeah, so time series forecasting is a, a field of statistics, uh, I think it's fair to say, um, where you're trying to learn uh, from some data. Uh, statistics is largely a field about learning from data, but the data you're learning from in a time series context is the quantity that you're trying to forecast just tracked through time, repeated measurements. You've got a history of that same quantity uh, say every month for the last five years, and you're trying to forecast it for each of uh, the months uh, over the next year. And uh, so that's largely the data you have. You study that data and you try to build out some forecast that essentially extrapolates the past into the future. It's very different from a problem where the data you have to learn uh, about a quantity you're interested in that you're trying to forecast is uh, data on other variables. You're trying to predict um, how uh, tall uh, your two and a half son, two and a half year old son is going to be when he grows up. Um, you know, maybe you're, you're looking at uh, other factors. You're looking at um, not his time series, how tall he was when he was a month old, two months old, three months, but you're looking to, you know, how old uh, are his relative or sorry, how tall are his relatives? It's, it's, it's data from other variables. Um, so that's a different kind of problem than a time series forecasting problem. Well, I'm seeing some questions here about Darden and the learning experience at, at Darden. And so I want to come back to the Darden classroom and ask you, and one thing that's on my mind is how has your experience at Google influenced your teaching or how you're thinking about courses uh, that, that you're leading? Uh, it has really uh, bred informed the way I think about uh, how data scientists interact with product managers. And product managers uh, are largely MBAs. And they are folks embedded in these tech firms and they don't generally manage people, but they manage our products and they're focused on the user. 
And they rely on data scientists, they rely on software engineers, software engineers build the product, data scientists um, help product managers make uh, proper inference, proper uh, good inferences uh, from the data they have. Uh, they get lots of data on users, they get lots of data on operations, and they need to make some sense of what all of this means. And um, that's where my mind is when I, when I approach a data science-like course, a course that's in the field of data science at Darden, and I'm teaching a lot of electives that are in that space, uh, I'm constantly thinking about how to help a product manager think about ways to leverage what a data scientist does, how to collaborate with those people, how to add value to that process. Um, product managers who uh, think of data science as a silo and treat it as uh, an outsourced activity, uh, I think will not see the kind of value they would like to see out of that uh, type of endeavor. Uh, if they engage in it, they try to collaborate with those folks, they they can really find ways to add value to the work that data scientists do. I find the most successful product managers at Google really do understand what a data scientist does and they can manage that workflow in um, some, some really creative and, and, and powerful ways. One of the things that students always ask about, you think about a course like this is an analysis or a data science related elective, Darden is known for this participatory case method, discussion-based learning environment. How do you make that work with something that might seem, well, that is more te technical that, you know, you have all the models and spreadsheets and things that you're developing, you know, how do you, how do you make that work in a case method or in a discussion setting? Uh, we do it uh, through a variety of vehicles. We use tech notes. So folks will read a tech note at the same time they're reading a case. They'll, they will apply the concept that's being discussed in the tech note to the case. They will then come to the class and in the class we'll talk not only about the case, but we'll kind of take a 15, 20 minute block of the discussion, an hour and a half long class discussion and really delve into the technical piece. Like what is the method? Let's unpack the methodology. Let's see if we can internalize and understand its mechanism, like what is the essence of why this works in this setting with the data we have and for this particular business problem. We also use videos. So we uh, ask folks to watch videos that are kind of like um, animated tech notes. And um, the other thing we do is um, we rely on um, learning teams and uh, classmates helping classmates. We have lots of folks at the Darden School who are very quantitatively adept. Some of them are even in the dual degree program. They are in the School of Data Science getting a master's degree there in data science, and they're also in the MBA program. If these folks are on your team, uh, you can rely on them to, to help you learn uh, more of the technical side of things. And those folks get a lot out of it too. They get a chance to teach. Uh, and if they don't entirely understand a methodology, if they have to uh, try to teach a classmate what, what that is, uh, they learn it all that much better. I appreciate the shout out for the dual degree, the MBA MSDS uh, program. Uh, for those of you who are interested in hearing a bit more about that program, uh, there is a podcast episode out there that features a student who's in that dual degree uh, right now, um, talking about who, his experience. That, I can't remember the student off the top of my head, um, but okay. co-hosted co by my admissions colleague, Marav Frazier. Um, it's on the Experience Darden podcast. So highly recommend it. You can complete both pro programs in 24 months, which is, um, which is incredible. Um, two degrees in, in just two years. So Casey, um, something that, that's been on, on my mind is uh, thinking about the value of sort of this data facility and comfort with data, comfort explaining data, using some of these tools. Why is this broadly important for MBA students? You know, we have decision analysis in the core for a reason, but why, why, is, this, uh, why is this important here? I guess it's the scale and scope of business and the amount of data that um, all businesses are, are, are recording um, and, and maintaining and then surfacing and, and, and management teams are using that data. If you don't use the data, your competitor will. 
um, and and we need to make sense of the data. And the data is getting so big uh, that you can't look at it in a spreadsheet anymore. Uh, most data sets that uh, even more than 10 person size businesses are generating, sometimes even smaller businesses are generating, a, you, you just need to start looking to other tools. Um, the spreadsheet world served us well for, I don't know, 20, 30 years, 40 years of business. Uh, but I think some tools like Tableau, tools like BigQuery, tools like um, um, Hadoop, uh, like to wrangle data, to visualize data, uh, to run algorithms, um, and then to distill the findings, uh, to make it explainable. Explainable AI is a is a big movement inside the machine learning community right now, and it's something that's accessible to managers. It's something that managers are using to guide their thinking around how uh, to respond to the feedback they're getting from the environment, their competitors, their users, um, their customers. Uh, it uh, it seems uh, like it's becoming mission critical. It's 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 essential that uh, any manager. Uh, be able to uh, work with some of these tools, or at least be good consumers of the product that come products that come out of these tools. Well, one of the things that I really enjoyed from our prep conversation for this conversation is how much time you've been you've been thinking. Let me try this again. How much time you spent thinking about the sequence of courses and the things that a student you can encounter in an MBA program as they develop these skills? I mean, you've got a number of electives. Uh, this year. So talk to us a little bit more about how you've been thinking about these things. Yeah, I think we have a pretty decent sequence lined up now uh, through the full two-year uh, arc of being an MBA at Darden. It starts with the core, three quarters of a decision analysis class, which is also part data analysis. Um, then you move into a fourth quarter elective period. And one of those electives you can take is a data visualization and analytics course where you get into Tableau, larger data sets, you move out of the spreadsheet world after you learn some of the basics of regression and data analysis and sampling theory and hypothesis testing. And you get into visualization and larger data sets and working with SQL and uh, building models uh, in, 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 on a cloud platform with larger data sets, interpreting those results uh, through explainable AI techniques. And then in the second year, you can transition into a data science course, a proper data science course, where you learn uh, to code in Python. And uh, this is something that uh, somebody entering the MBA program with a non-quantitative background, if they take this whole sequence, can step into this course with confidence. This data science course is designed to take in uh, somebody who has just simply experienced their first year at Darden have nothing else in their background. They're not some computer science undergrad. They're just coming to this course uh, with an open mind that they can learn some Python enough to know uh, precisely what goes on uh, with a data science team and the kinds of projects they work on and how they work on those projects, what are some of their techniques and concepts and, and tricks uh, and the language, learn the terminology. Uh, while you're learning how to code in Python and learn the beginnings of, of what goes on in machine learning. And then you can uh, take a course after that in experiments and causal analytics, where you'll learn a bit about uh, how tech firms and, and, and pharmaceutical companies uh, and many other companies uh, run experiments uh, to really tease out causal effects. Uh, causal effects are the gold standard in business. If you find a causal effect and it's an, an actual lever you can pull, uh, it, it could lead to a whole new strategy uh, and a breakaway uh, success with a, with a particular product that's maybe new or, 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 or fairly mature. And um, you can follow this up with a hot topics course at the end of your two-year period and, and learn from a bunch of industry professionals, uh, what's going on in the world of data science analytics? What are the hottest, latest, greatest ideas, techniques uh, companies are leveraging? Uh, so that's a bit of the sequence. Uh, spent some time thinking about what should be in those courses, who can teach them, uh, and, and 
what other courses are going on around uh, this elective sequence. There are courses in uh, product management. There are courses in software uh, design. There are courses in software development uh, that you can take as part of a package around digital transformation, for instance, uh, as you work your way through your second year. You're right. That second year has that choose your own adventure quality to it. Students are over the course of that very final quarter of their first year and the second year, take 24 total electives. So a lot of choice for full-time MBA students. And I was looking at the course directory. It looks like your data visualization course may be available to executive MBA students this year. Was I reading that correctly? Yeah, that's right, Brett. I'm teaching uh, data visualization and analytics to the um to the EMBAs, the executive MBA folks, uh, starting in January. Nice. Well, I want to pick up on something you mentioned, because I think this is such a hallmark of what happens at Darden. The importance of communication and the ability to explain something or to take information, to visualize it, create a story around it, um, that seems like what you do in all of, all of your classes here. Yeah, that's right. That's just part of the case method. Uh, we put a real problem in front of you, a real company, some real data, and we ask you to address that problem. And part of addressing that problem means uh, creating a compelling story around your solution and convincing the folks in the room, not just the faculty member, but your, your classmates largely, that you've got a sound approach uh, to addressing the problem. Um, Data visualization can oftentimes be a big part of telling that story. A picture tells a thousand words. And uh, yeah, that, uh, that is baked in. I kind of take that as given sometimes. Well, another thing that I think is really interesting about the Darden classroom, given the questions we've gotten about, oh, the poets and the quants in the room, is when you're telling that story, let's imagine you're someone that has a deep, technical background prior to business school, you have to learn how to communicate to the whole room. You can't just speak in code words or things that would be understood by other people who share your background. You have to speak to all 65 people just in, in your first year section. Uh, same kind of lens for faculty members as they're, as they're thinking about teaching. Yeah, that's right, Brad. I, I, I think that's an undervalued, underappreciated at times uh, experience that the case method offers to participants. If you're an expert in, in a particular area or, or just have this, this amazing uh, uh, skill set that, that, that means you could just learn this stuff quickly on, on your own, even without taking a course, the opportunity to try to teach some other folks uh, that, that concept or thing that you're, you're, you're just naturally good at uh, picking up is, is, is such a gift. Um, it's, it's easily one of the most um, important skills out there in the world. Uh, when you're leading a team, if you can teach everybody uh, in, the, in a matter of 10 minutes, something that uh, is quite complicated, might take an hour or two for somebody to uh, digest if they would go off and try to learn this on their own, uh, that can really uh, lead to a more efficient workplace, uh, a pleasant workplace where those you manage uh, f find the, uh, the environment super engaging because they're learning so much from you. Um, and this is the, in the case method environment, you get a chance to practice that over 300 times, every single time you walk into the Darden classroom is an opportunity for you to practice that skill, teaching others about what is largely a pretty complicated idea, even if it's a, a qualitative idea. Does that resonate with your own story? I'm thinking about what you shared earlier, someone maybe for whom things like statistics or some of these math classes might've come a bit more easily. And here you are, your decision analysis faculty member, you've got a PhD, you've done all this study and research, and you're in a business school program, and you're talking to lots of different people. Does that, does that resonate with you? Yes, it does. I, this is something I uh, aspire to do better uh, every single day, is explain things more concisely, crisply, uh, in a more compelling way. I do it in my research. I, I work on writing and rewriting and revising yet again. To, to try to make the language uh, uh, that much cleaner, that, that much more um, 
communicative uh, that 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 you know the ideas that are coming through per words you include in a document or or the things you say in a classroom environment yeah this is this is super super important stuff um yeah think about it a lot well you're also the co-academic director of the msba program this is that one year specialized master's program that darden offers in conjunction with the McIntyre School of Commerce. So those of you who are just learning about the University of Virginia, interesting structure. You have an undergraduate School of Commerce um, that serves the, the college students at, at the university. And then you have a graduate School of Business, which is the, the Darden School of Business. So two schools have banded together uh, to offer this one year spe specialized master's, a master's of science in business analytics. Um, Casey, what do you enjoy about being the co-academic director for, for this program? Well, this is a really interesting program. I, I love the idea that we have uh, taken the best of the data science slash analytics stuff out of the MBA program, taken the, 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 the foundation of business that we feel like an analytics professional should know uh, and put it into a one-year uh, format in a way that uh, somebody doesn't have to leave their job. Uh, the MBA is a is a big commitment of resources. You're committing your time, and you're 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 taking a break from 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 working, and uh, that can pay off for a lot of folks. Um, but fo some folks don't want to leave their job, and some folks are specialized enough. They they think analytics is their thing, and they don't want to leave that job they're currently in, and so they want to have uh, an experience that isn't quite as long, doesn't cost as much. Uh, but still has a large focus on solving business problems. And um, so that is what the MSBA program is, the Masters of Science in Business Analytics. It's designed to um, teach just enough data science uh, to solve uh, the business problems that we, we, we find many firms face. Um, and that, that, that's what we've, we've structured with the McIntyre School. I, they share a, a vision with us, us around uh, what what a one-year master's program can be in that, in, that, in that area. One of the great things about the program is there's all, great, all these interesting team projects that students work on with real live data sets from, from major, major companies out there. Yeah, that's right, Brett. Um, this is something that I've talked to many Darden colleagues about. We uh, got this idea from McIntyre, so hats off to the McIntyre School uh, they run this as part of all of their master's programs, what they do at the end of each module. Uh, we're not on a quarter system with that one-year program. It's five modules, but you can think of them like quarters. They're six to seven-week experiences. And at the end of each of those experiences, there's a project that cuts across all of the courses. And um, you, as a team, uh, deliver on this project, give a presentation at the end, and all the faculty in each of the courses uh, grade that presentation. And it's a part of uh, the grade in each of the courses. So it's a very integrated experience across all the courses that are running in a single mod. It's something we don't do in the MBA program. It's something we should look at. It's quite an innovation. I, I've never uh, experienced uh, such an integrative uh, um, approach uh, to bringing for what seem like at times disconnected courses where you can bring together a strategy course and a finance course and a decision analysis course and a, and a leading organizations course. It's pretty phenomenal that uh, you can get that all, all to um, come together in a very seamless way that looks like you're just simply solving one problem instead of four separate problems. I'll give you an example of some major company sponsors we have every year in our mod three Hilton uh, gives us their worldwide employee service survey data. And uh, it's a people analytics problem largely. And uh, the Hilton executives come and uh, watch the presentations at the end and give feedback to the students about uh, how they did in terms of interpreting the survey results, um, things they need to be uh, watching out for, either the good or the bad. Um, and every year that uh, we've run this since the inception of the program, we're going into year four now. Uh, it's been a bit different. And so uh, Hilton signed up again this year. And uh, yeah, it's a, it's a great experience, this end of mod project. 
um, team well, thank te teamwork that uh, the, the folks in that program do. Well, thank you for sharing those insights. And it's, it's great to hear that sort of integrative approach. We just had a mock class for MBA, MSBA prospective students earlier this week. And Yael was, who was leading the mock class, Yael Grushka-Kane, who's uh, done as leader of the professional degree programs here at the Darden School of Business. She's talking about this integrative approach and the fact that, you know, in a, in a given mod, you're learning from multiple faculty who are all kind of teaching different things, but it's all with this idea towards project and you know giving you these business skills and the, the analysis skills the, the data skills and so I um, want to come to your research interest as promised we're going to talk ab about what you're looking at right now what you're passionate about one of the questions we got in the Q&A Casey I'm curious about this is office hours you know some of this is about learning how students engage with faculty here at the Darden School of Business uh, do students ever help you with your research projects or things that you're working on? Yeah, I had a, a student um, bring up in class an idea that ended up being a research project that I published in a major journal. I was uh, shocked. I uh, almost was stunned. I was, I was in class and this woman, Laurel, I still remember what she said. She said, well, why don't you just take these, uh, we were looking at um, CDFs, cumulative distribution functions. It's a way to represent a forecast you, and you'd learn this in your first year uh, decision analysis course if you don't already know what this concept is. And we were looking at these probabilities that come off of one of these curves. You can read them off the curve. And she said, well, if you've got a few of these, um, you know, you, you, you could average the forecasts and maybe that's a better forecast. And uh, that's, a, that's an obvious idea. Everybody knows that. That's called an ensemble, if, if folks don't know the technical term for that. And that's very popular in machine learning. But she said, you know, you can average it the other direction. And, and averaging the other direction is um, averaging quantiles instead of averaging cumulative probabilities. And, uh, you know, that's also a known idea. But um, I had never really thought about comparing the two, like a horse race, kind of a bait off. Uh, should you average the probabilities that people tell you an event is going to occur or should you average their quantiles, um, which is averaging the other way? It turns out there's a big difference between those two approaches. There's a very systematic difference. We were able to write down some, some theory that, that proves that uh, averaging quantiles is always going to lead to a lower variance forecast. And uh, it has implications for how you uh, tap into the wisdom of crowds. If you give uh, a group of people an opportunity to make forecasts and you want to aggregate up those forecasts, uh, it matters how you, how you do that. And um, this, this was a research project that was inspired by a comment uh, by a student in class. Um, yeah, shocking stuff. Well, what are you looking at right now? What are you really excited about on the research front? Uh, right now, I'm working on trying to forecast um, new, new, new product life cycles. Uh, so new products go, especially like durable goods, or we can think of like um, uh, computer uh, parts. Uh, we can think of uh, computers themselves, laptops. We can think of uh, even like social networks. They go through a birth and like a death process. So they'll They'll grow up, they'll mature, they'll hit a peak in terms of their sales, and then they'll start to decline and then die off. Um, you know, even successful companies with hugely successful brands, uh, they oftentimes experience this kind of life cycle with a particular generation of their products. So if you just go to Google Trends and you type in iPhone 7, 8, 9, 10, and 11, and overlay all of those um, uh search interests uh, of those different generations of the product, you'll see a whole bunch of overlapping little life cycles where it grows up, hits a peak, and then comes back down. Like people don't buy the iPhone 7 now. Actually, you can't even buy it. But uh, companies have to manage the life cycle of the generations of their products if, if they don't just simply have to manage their entire company's life cycle. Um, you can almost all, already see the life cycle tracing itself out uh, with companies like Facebook or, or brands like Facebook, Instagram, uh, WhatsApp. You can go look at those 
those kinds of social networks and see these life cycles. And so I've been trying to develop some time series models that would um, allow you to learn from the evolution of your own product, but also leverage um, data on past similar products and incorporate uh, the learning from the two pieces uh, in, in a balanced way so that you're putting enough weight on some past similar products that have fully uh, 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 gone through the birth and death cycle. And then you're putting just the right amount of weight on what's happened with the current product uh, up until the current time. And maybe it's prior to the peak, maybe it's even before launch. And how uh, can you balance those two things as you go through the evolution? What got you interested in looking at this particular question? Well, I've been interested in time series forecasting for quite a while, uh, teach it as part of courses at Darden. I've written a textbook on time series forecasting. And uh, one of the thorniest problems within the, the world of time series forecasting is life cycle forecasting. It's just quite difficult uh, to understand where the peak is when you're prior to the peak of a, a product's life cycle. Uh, and if you just use the data on the current product that's evolving uh, in its own life cycle to try to forecast where its peak is going to be, you're, you're, you're really going to have a, a difficult time. Um, and so researchers have known you've got to leverage past data, past life cycle data. But my sense is it just hasn't been totally worked out. I, I feel like there's a big gap there. And then, you know, we're just going to offer one solution. I don't think it's going to be the end of the story. Um, and, and other solutions are, are out there. We don't, we don't think they've answered the question. And uh, while we don't have the full answer, the gap is big enough uh, for me to feel like uh, we could write a few papers in this area and, and make some headway. Well, Casey, it's been a pleasure being here with you this morning. We, we, in these Office Hour series, we've talked to all manner of faculty across any number of areas. It's been really interesting to hear about your work you know, your work as a data scientist, your time at, at Google, and you know how you help students both from very technical backgrounds and also non-technical backgrounds, the poets and the quants, uh, navigate their way through decision analysis and, and beyond during, during their time at Darden. I wonder, as an alumnus of the school, as a member of the faculty, what's your why Darden pitch for folks who are here today? You know, wh why, why this particular business school? Uh, well, I think the same thing uh, is true of Darden today as when I was uh, choosing between business schools and it's this uh, case method. So first and foremost, it's the focus on practical problems. It's this discussion-based format of learning, um, learning by talking it out and uh, the collaborative environment. Uh, Darden is, is still very team-based. You're on learning teams, you're in sections, and even the whole section feels like a big, one big team where, where everybody is trying to facilitate everybody else's learning, uh, faculty member, members included. And um, that, that is the why for me. That, that to me is, is the pinnacle of education. I've seen a lot of different uh, styles. I've sat through lots of lectures. Um, I've, I've done the MBA at Darden and there's just been for me no greater learning environment than when I was a student or when I walk out of a class and I feel like that really hit the sweet spot. And I, I know it uh, when we're right in the middle of it and we're in minute 55 and we've, we've still got more than a half an hour to go and, and folks are, are really uh, engaged. And you, you know, when you look around a room of 60 folks and you've got 40 hands up, that, that's when you know that you're, you're not in the normal classroom. Uh, and that happens at Darden on a fairly regular basis. And uh, I'm guessing that that is, that is happening in probably less than 1% of classrooms around the world. Um, so that's the why for me. And that was my interview with Casey Lichtendahl, Darden faculty member and co-academic director of the MSBA program. As always, if you have any comments, suggestions, requests, anything you'd like for us to cover here on the podcast, we're all ears. We can be reached at Darden, that's D-A-R-D-E-N, at virginia.edu. Until next time, stay safe, be well, and thanks for listening.